Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, exploring Aotearoa's wilderness has become the thing to do for many people looking for adventures inside our borders. But forget it if you're planning to venture into untouched territory. To burst your bubble, there are no untouched areas in New Zealand. Everything has been touched by us. Like We've introduced species, there have been people who've gone there before, we've erected buildings. And we're doing our darndest at the moment to take things back to some semblance of how they were before we stuffed it up. That's Alison Balance, science and environment writer, whose work has taken her to corners of New Zealand that most of us will never see. But there's a huge desire to go to the back of beyond. Our great walks are getting booked out in half an hour. So today we're going to places that few have gone before with three people who know isolation very well. We don't actually have anywhere that you would truly count as pristine and that includes our islands. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Well possibly in the subantarctic, there are two islands, Disappointment Island and Adams Island and the Auckland Islands group, which are sort of claimed to be our most pristine islands. But honestly, they even had sheep for a while on Adams Island. You know, it got off remarkably lightly. It doesn't have introduced predators, so it doesn't have rats, stoats and mice and things like that. And Disappointment Island, you know, it's had shipwrecks on it. Uh, that's why it's named that. And the people got off in a hurry. But we've been everywhere, even, even something like the Bounty Islands, you know, there have been people there counting penguins and counting albatrosses, so there isn't anywhere truly untouched. The thing about islands is they are they are they do have this wonderful inaccessibility about them and this this feeling that you are going somewhere that very few people have gone before you. And the trickiest thing about that is that they're islands and they have large amounts of rough sea between where we are here in mainland New Zealand and getting to the island. So in fact it's the sea voyage that's often the most intrepid part of those trips. What's the hairiest trip that you have done? I spent four months on Campbell Island doing my master's degree, and uh, we went down in perfectly normal Southern Ocean weather, which is to say the sea state was quite rough. Uh, but we came back in a gale, and being at, I've been in a few big seas now on different sized boats, and you're never in any danger. But there is this feeling that there is a feeling of danger that goes with that. There's a feeling of perceived risk. And I have did have a, it was a three-week expedition up to the Kermadec Islands, which is at the other end of New Zealand. So if you travel north, if you head in a straight line to Tonga, halfway there you get to the Kermadecs, which includes Rowell Island. And, you know, it's difficult to get to because it's just two or three days steaming in the first place to get there. And then you're going ashore, if you're allowed to go ashore, and mostly you're not, uh, in little inflatable boats generally. And there isn't a landing place, you're just landing on the rocks. And again, you're relying on the skills of the person you're with and the experience they have and how to read the sea state and how to nip in nimbly and get you ashore. And you have to be able to scramble off a boat very quickly before a wave tips the inflatable over. When someone gives you a shove and says, go, you have to go. And so probably those moments in time where I've been in little boats and we've been surging up to a coastline somewhere and I'm about to jump off, that's probably the most heart-racing moments for me. I don't get to go to these islands very often for very long. They're usually brief encounters. Uh, and somewhere like Whenua Ho, Codfish Island, where I've been whilst working with Kākāpō, 
and Hauturu, Little Barrier Island and the Hauraki Gulf is the same. If I do get a chance to go to them, it's just an immense privilege. And those aren't the, you know, the, the most difficult places I've been to. Uh, and I don't think you need to necessarily go to the back of beyond to have a rich and rewarding experience. Okay, so nowhere in New Zealand is untouched, but there are still a lot of difficult places to get to if you really want to get into the wilds. So do oh, you, yeah. Yeah, and, and so do you think it's a good thing to open, make these places more accessible? I think you need a gradient. I think it's a wonderful thing for people to be able to experience the great outdoors. And there's what Doc calls the front country, where it's very easy to drive somewhere or take a bus somewhere and go for a walk. And those walks should be easy to do and they should be accessible. And I'm thinking about taking my mother for a walk somewhere with their walking frame and it may be as simple as having a smooth surface so she can easily push her walking frame on it. We definitely need lots of places like that. And then I think there is a, a next tier of things like Doc's Great Walks, for instance, the Milford Track, the Rootburn Track, which are wonderful experiences. And there clearly is an appetite for them because Doc reports that those huts, which you have to book in advance, get booked out within about half an hour of them becoming available. So New Zealanders are queuing up to do things like that at the moment. And those places are great walks for a reason. And they should definitely be of a good standard. And people still need to know what they're doing. And because I think one of the things that people don't realise in New Zealand is how changeable our weather is. The most dangerous situation you will find yourself in New Zealand is if you're in the backcountry and the weather changes suddenly on you. It can get very cold and very wet and very windy very fast. And our rivers come up very quickly and river crossings become very dangerous. So if you're going to start walking on something other than a great walk, you need to be able to factor those things in. And there is a designation uh, in New Zealand, which is a wilderness area, which are places you can't fly a helicopter into, you can't drive into, there are no huts. And I absolutely believe there should be places like that where they are off limits to almost all of us. But if you're really adventurous and have the right skills and the right level of fitness, you can go in there and get away from everything. As New Zealanders do search for places that are a bit more adventurous, are the tracks good enough? Are these places ready for, for more people? Not always. You do hear stories of places that suddenly are on people's radar and there's just too many people walking and the track service just isn't resilient enough to cope with lots and lots of people and it becomes very muddy. Uh, so there is a, you can love a place to death and that's why I think it's fine for some places to be off limits. So things like our offshore islands uh, are actually very sensitive places. They, they're, they're soft, peaty soil and it doesn't take too many people walking to churn up a, a total quagmire so you don't actually want lots of people. You don't want an open slaver. And the other aspect of that, and particularly in terms of islands, is there's a real biosecurity issue with opening those islands up. So we've gone to enormous efforts to take away the introduced species that were destroying the ecosystems, and we're now letting the ecosystems rebuild. But every person who goes to one of those islands is a biosecurity risk. You know, We might just have a seed in our sock that becomes an invasive weed. We just might have an Argentine ant hiding away on our bag. And you do your darndest to make sure you're not taking 
things like that with you, but every person is a risk. So we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be trying to um, get on a, a boat and, and scramble up to these places just for the experience of going somewhere that is so difficult to get to. Well, some people will want to, and I know that the tourist operators who work in the subantarctic would like to take more people, but it's a very fine balancing act between landing your 400 tourists on the beach where the yellow-eyed penguins are coming back and forth all day and don't want to land on their beach because there's 400 tourists in red jackets. So, you know, you've got a, it's a juggling act between the rights of people to go somewhere and have a new experience and the delicate ecosystem and the sensitive wildlife who are going to get disrupted if there are too many visitors too much of the time. I'm looking out now to the tops, the ridges of Teurawera. Brenda Tahi's workplace is in the forests and mountains of Te Uruwera in the central North Island. She's chief executive of Manawahani, based in Ruatahuna. The wilderness feeds the business, but it also needs people to keep it alive. A lot of people will associate Te Uruwera with the particular park uh, that is administered by Tuhoi, the tribe, and used to be the Uruwera National Park. But the Uruwera covers a whole region which includes the private lands that are held here and we're responsible for some of those private lands as a trust, uh, the Tua Whenua Trust. Uh, so we've got a lot of points at which we can get the bees to go into the Uruwera but you know, there's not the access all the way through the Uruwera for us to be able to actually harvest all the potential um, honey that's produced or the nectars that are produced throughout the forest. So we do a little bit of helicopter access. Downriver, there's particular spots where you can only reach down at all high with Dirangi is the name of the place. You can only reach by horseback or by foot or by helicopter. And so for uh, harvesting the honeys of that region, we use helicopter. Can you describe what that place is like? Paradise, I think people have said to me. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. I mean, there's the river terraces. Some parts of it have been cleared for the old people way back. And over time, um, a small farms were kept there. So there's evidence of the areas that had been cleared in the past. A lot has come back into second generation, like Rewerewa, and that's how we get some really nice Rewerewa. Uh, based honeys down there and there, there's quite a good stands of kanuka down there as well as manuka so it makes an incredible bush honey and we call it puatane meaning the the bounty of the god of the forest can you describe it physically describe it it's a living place there's a couple who live down there and look after the marae and have been or there all their lives pretty much since they married brought their children up down there and that's uh, like a t an hour and a half walk from the end of the road. Their place overlooks the valleys so the places of occupation were up off the river, ancient river terraces in the valley and you've got these beautiful views of the river and um, the bush on the other side. There's lots of these places throughout here so for those who don't know the history and don't know about the people they'll come into the bush and they'll think it's just bush 
And but for those who know this place, they know that it was where their um, grandparents or great grandparents um, brought up their their families. One place uh, called Matarai was a place you go way up over the hill, and there there's a huge stand of flax, and this flax is famed for its strength for making rope. But this is uh, you know like in the middle of the bush where there is no flax naturally around much of this part of, of Dewitawera. This is the link to the old world. I mean, the whole of Dewitawera was occupied. There was actually people lived all the way through this forest. And that's the way in which we want to think about it for the future, you see. So the whole park idea and the conservation of it without people in it is actually a bit of, is really foreign to Tuhoi. And Brenda Tahi says there are two challenges. One is to get young people back there. The other is to manage tourism so that there are not busloads of visitors turning up, but those who do come have a meaningful experience. Now from Te Uruwera to Fiordland, here's Robin McNeil, mountaineer and tramper extraordinaire. In between the two most beaten tracks on Fiordland, it's the Milford Road and the uh, Milford Track, there is this pass called Marshall Pass and the best way to do it is to start on the Milford Track and then head right up the north branch of the Clinton and it's a fairly gnarly pass, let's put it that way, it was first discovered uh, by Bill Grave in 1906. My wife was the first woman I think ever over it and I think we were probably the third party ever over it, that was back in 1987 if I remember correctly. So once you leave the Milford track which is very nicely manicured suddenly you're into all sorts of scrub and boulders and hard work we were fortunate to have fine weather it might have been a bit of a catastrophic trip because we didn't have a radio or a gps or a satellite phone because they hadn't been invented or anything like that and away we went and it was rather committed climbing up from the joe's river to the north you know, out of milford sound um Marshall Pass, it's just a beautiful 200 metre rock slab getting up to the pass itself I mean, it's a bit eerie, um, but fantastic views and all looked so good so far on the old inch to the mile map I had and then we uh, looked down the other side and, well, we didn't have a choice we had to keep going, otherwise I'm not sure um, not sure what we would have done, to be really honest um, but we got the rope out and lowered the packs and climbed down what's called pineapple scrub or dracophyllum and snow grass and dracophyllum is really good stuff you can wrap your hands around snow grass and really pull on it and it takes your whole body weight um, as long as your body can you know, hang on mm. and um, so are we talking yeah. like really really sheer cliff uh, well not a cliff but it's, it's steep snow grass uh, yeah it's, you've got to have a good head for heights Right. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is grass and stuff to hang on to. What's and, below you? Ah, uh, well, quite a lot of space. And um, and then Lake Iceberg, which is very, very pretty. So anyway, we got down there all right. And then Lake Iceberg's full at a 1,000 metres. And then we got to Flower Falls. And at that stage, I was um, it start, hadn't edited Moyes' Guide South, which is the guidebook for Fiordland. Um, and I had a very old edition. It just said the route starts in the other direction, 200 metres to the right of the falls. And uh, I looked down, I couldn't see. It just looked like cliff to me. So I just paced out 200 metres and down we went. Well, we lowered the packs for a while um, and then just 
climbed down the snow grass and then my mate the three of us um he decided this was a waste of time and he threw his pack down to the next little ledge and of course it could either stay there or it could move on and um, anyway to cut a long story short he spent the rest of the uh, the next hour chasing bounce marks in the scrub all the way down into the basin below and Sue and I um, carefully climbed down with our packs uh, the, uh, the little bluffy, greasy snow grass. Yeah. Oh, um, and so you, you haven't been back there since? Oh, it's sort of a trip of a lifetime. I mean, there's so much so much country in Fiordland that it's it's not funny. You know, you have epics. There's a, what we call epics on the outdoor world, you know, stage one epics, you know, that's pleasant. And there's, you know, stage two epics, you... At the time, you sort of rather wish you might perhaps be somewhere else, and but afterwards you really enjoy it. And then the stage three epics, which you really don't want. And if you survive that, then you've got really good stories to tell. Um, yeah, was that a be... stage three epic? No, 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 no. Um, it was. Uh, we we weren't going to die or anything, but yeah, your heart's in your mouth sometimes. Put it that way, and a little bit of adrenaline, cold, sweaty palms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Marshall Pass, that sounds pretty incredible. It's gobstopping um, scenery. It, it really is beautiful. And, I mean, it puts the fear of God into you about how you might get in and out of some of these places, uh, which is why it's nice to be on the Milford Track, I guess. But, hey, it's just, just such incredible country. Hmm. Can you describe what it's like for you? You know, you've got these moments where your heart's in your mouth. Is that part of it? Oh, yeah, I don't like that feeling at all, but you have to put up with that to uh, get to the places that you want to get to. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd tend to stay at home, to be really honest. I'm really lazy. But uh, <laughs> but what I guess is really nice about being in the outdoors like this and off the track is that the only rules that you have to follow, the ones that keep you alive or uncomfortable, um, I mean, you can park your tent wherever you want, but you better give it some thought whether it's going to be there in the morning. Um you can go up a stupid route if you want, and you may or may not survive, but you know, that's the choice you have. Can I ask you, you know, as people get more adventurous and search for more remote places, is the wilderness ready for them? Is it a good thing to open up everywhere to people? What is really cool about um, our backcountry is that it's actually heavily controlled through statutory management plans like the national park management plans and that prescribes where helicopters can go and can't go and how many helicopters but what it means is that you don't have lots of helicopter overflights or landings in remote places to annoy people um, and you can divide the national park up into you know, clearly defined areas so there are people in the coaches going to Milford Sound especially from overseas when they used to come, who would consider that a fantastic wilderness experience. When you're at Milford Sound, you're 122 kilometres from the nearest petrol station, and, you know, it is a wilderness experience. Um, but for me, the Milford Road is a way to get to my wilderness area, and so you can manage the national park so that everybody gets the sense of wilderness, and that's where careful planning by the Department of Conservation and checked by the Conservation Authority and Conservation Boards can make that a real make make that happen. And so everybody is pretty happy. You know, you're never going to get everyone happy. There are also places like wilderness areas, um, like the Glaze Knock and FMC's been pushing for the Poteri Terry wilderness area for a while now, and um, also 
down in the bottom of Stewart Island, um, we have gazetted wilderness areas. That's no tracks, no huts, no helicopters, no guiding. And you know, some people, especially guides, might say, well, why not? Um, why can't we go everywhere? And my answer is just because you can go everywhere, does that mean that you have to? So you're saying that there are some areas that are just totally out of bounds and they should stay that way because why? Just to protect <coughs> the... No, they're not out of bounds. It oh. just means that, that you, um, if you're going to go through them, you better walk because you're certainly not going to take a helicopter or a guide. Mm. Why shouldn't people be able to helicopter anywhere? Is it... Well, because they can helicopter somewhere else, that would be almost the same. And I remember um, having this discussion with Nick Smith when he was the Minister of Conservation. He said, oh, you'd be... Um, I like Nick, Nick, I have to say. <laughs> um, actually, I like most of the Ministers of Conservation we've had, including the current one. But the, I remember him saying, though, he eyed me up, engineer to engineer. I said, well, you wouldn't... If you say you wouldn't want the road through to Milford Sound now, would you? You know, because that's going to kill the wilderness values, effectively what he was saying. And mm. I, the answer was no, actually, we do need a road through to Milford Sound because, you know, that opens up possibilities for everyone to go there and enjoy it and just be overwhelmed by... Uh, I hate the word iconic, but at least use it. Iconic scenery. Ten percent of people used to come to New Zealand to go to Milford Sound and see Mitre Peak. It's been on the tourist destination since the 1880s. This whole thing about getting out and wanting to be in wilderness, I think, is something very primal in us because we, you know, evolved as a species in the wilderness, and there's something very energizing about being out in nature and I think that's why people like doing it and it's what I like doing when I go to remote places when I go for a walk in the bush or when I get an opportunity to go to an island it's very regenerating and grounding That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Brenda Tahi, Alison Balance and Robin McNeil. Ka kite anō.